Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, open up the book of Jude, the last couple verses. We are concluding uh, this epistle. Next week, we'll start uh, a fun series. Well, I think it's going to be fun. We'll see what you think. It's called The Twelve. It's actually on the minor prophets. And I'm going to do one sermon, or a collection of guys will do one sermon per minor prophet, which is going to be crazy because the first one I'm preaching is Hosea. It's like 19 chapters, so that'll be fun. But it's going to be a little bit different of a kind of series to help us understand the story of God, to connect these obscure books that you may rarely read with Christ. And so uh, I'm looking forward to it. Um, it will be a joy. But today we're ending uh, Jude and the last two verses of Jude. And uh, I will begin in verse 24. It only has one chapter, uh, so it shouldn't be hard to find. Verse 24 and 25 say this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now, as I said, this is the end of a short, but I think very passionate epistle named after the author Jude. And by way of reminder, uh, or perhaps introduction, uh, he began this epistle with a big call to contend, which is why we titled the series called To Contend. Um, and to contend was really meant to say that there is a charge to, to agonize and to fight against false gospels with false saviors being taught by false teachers inspired by false spirits. And he said basically that we're kind of in the middle of a battlefield even though the war has been won. And according to Jude, the battle for truth is not waged primarily out in the world, though there are plenty of battles out in the world to be had. That the battle for truth was actually being waged inside the church. He didn't name a particular church that he was writing to. It was probably a collection of churches that circulated this letter and read, would read it publicly. But what he was telling them was that certain people had crept into the church Without naming them, he describes them as people who were inspired by new revelations, dreams, and spiritual-sounding blasphemy. It may have sounded a little strange, but it was also dangerously attractive and alluring, bringing, or I should say, causing many to perhaps stray and turn away from finding salvation in Jesus to finding salvation in themselves. The gospel of self. Now, he plainly states some maybe disturbing truth, which is that Jesus both saves and Jesus destroys. Particularly, he judges, brings wrath upon those who are teaching falsely. That Jesus is both a God of forgiveness and a God of justice. A God of wrath and a God of mercy. Now he concludes this epistle, as we saw last week, telling Christians to persevere during these last days, that things are predictably difficult. And he says that the true, genuine followers of Jesus have to be vigilant in contending for the faith. Not a faith, 
not to be faithful, but the faith, the truth that has been given and delivered by God and passed on by prophets and apostles. And he tells us that we have to contend for the faith because the teachings, if you will, particularly demonic teachings, often look and feel and sound quite angelic. That's why they're so dangerous. He says we must be devoted to warning people, devoted to teaching people, devoted to praying, devoted to, as we saw last week, snatching those we love from the fires, perhaps the hellfires that are fueled by falsehood. To this end, his brother, Jude's brother James, speaks about this very thing. And he says at the end of his letter, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. There's a real promise in that, an urgency in that, saying there will be people wandering and we make effort to help them and to reach them and to turn them back to the truth. That's how James ends his letter. Jude ends his a little bit differently. He ends his with a very famous short song of praise about God to God. Now, in your Bible, more than likely, because most Bible do's will label these last two verses with a little bold label that says doxology. It's not the only place it's found in the Bible, but it is here in Jude. It's not written scripture. That's just a label by the editors and the uh, publishers. Now, by definition, a doxology is a short liturgical kind of praise, if you will, to God. And literally, I believe the word doxology means something to the effect of written glory. Written glory. And it usually takes the form of a poetic kind of four or five, six stanza line song, if you will. It's a little worship song. Now, there are several similar doxologies throughout the New Testament. Some of them appear in the middle of a letter. And some of them appear at the end of an epistle or a letter. And if you read the ones that appear in the middle of a letter, in context, they almost jump out at you. It's almost as if the author is writing and then suddenly bursts into this personal kind of moment of worship. And you see this happening in Paul's first letter to Timothy. He's writing, you know, 16 verses just of truth and different things. And then in verse 17, he says, To the king of ages immortal! Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's like a moment of praise. And it feels like that when you're like, whoa, that kind of came out of the blue. Other places, in particular, Paul writes or concludes his letter to the Romans with a doxology that sounds very similar to how Jude ends his letter. He uses some very similar words. The last verses of Romans says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings as has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring faith about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. 
similar doxologies. And these doxologies, these short little songs are packed with theology, just full of truth. And if you read them, because they're so full of truth, because they're so packed full of just rich theology, you can't help but have your eyes turned away from yourself and toward God when you read them. And that's his point. Now, each week, as you may know, we begin our services with what's called the doxology. And more than just getting people's attention like, oh, they're, they're starting, um, the intent is to reset our minds, to turn our eyes toward what we're doing. The service begins with a very famous doxology. It's kind of known as the doxology in the church. It was first written in 1674 by an Anglican bishop named Thomas Ken. And these words, this is a little four stanza line, uh, four line stanza, I believe, uh, it was actually added at the end of several hymns that he had written as a collection for his students when he was teaching at a college. I think it was Winchester College. And so he wrote this collection of which this one stanza that we begin our service with is at the end of several of lengthier hymns. And he wrote that for the students to privately study themselves every morning and evening. In fact, he warned the students, particularly as a boys' college, I believe, to only sing the hymn actually in the privacy of their dorm rooms, in their personal devotions, morning and evening. And he warned them that way because at that time the church believed that you should only, in your hymns, include words that were directly from Scripture. And so to sing a hymn or a song like this that was basically using your own lyrics was like adding to Scripture. So it was very much wrong to do that, which is somewhat ironic because this hymn, which was first sung secretly, quickly became the most frequently sung piece of music in worship in the church. But the question is, why sing secret hymns? Why sing privately? Why study these kinds of songs in your dorm room every morning and evening? Well, the truth is, singing is quite powerful. Now, some of you really don't like singing, right? And many of us uh, perhaps love singing, maybe only in the shower or by ourselves, but collectively, uh, singing is a powerful thing. I did some weird, nerdy research, and... What it showed is that singing actually has physical effects on us. It actually uh, can boost your immune system. Psychologically, it's kind of proven that singing is a natural antidepressant, probably depending on what you're singing, but it aids in lowering stress, right? You know why they yodel when they climb? They're not tense, right? And surprisingly, and maybe not so much, singing does actually impact us spiritually. Now, it seems like God knows the power of singing the Bible because it contains over 400 references to singing and 50 direct commands to sing. The longest book in the Bible, the Psalms, is a song book with all kinds of different types of songs ranging in emotions. In the New Testament, we're commanded not once, but actually twice to sing 
uh, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another when we meet. Ever wondered why we sing? Partially, it's we're commanded to, but partially because it does have a powerful effect on us. One book of the Bible that we'll preach over the next sometime here, 12 weeks, Zephaniah, did you know that was in the Bible? And in that book, there's an amazing statement. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Well, that's an interesting thought. God's singing over us. Singing has a very powerful effect on us, and everyone knows that because songs tend to get stuck in your mind, both good and bad ones, right? We do not enjoy the day our children learn the song, right? This is the song that never ends, and they think it's hilarious, you're like, and it goes on, and this is the song, like, oh my gosh. Or it's kind of like the, rec- I know your parents have had a recorder, if you had an elementary kid, you know that. If not, get ready for the hellish sound that is the recorder when your music teacher gives, like, it's, it gets stuck in your head. Everyone's like, yeah, I know that. Oh my gosh, my kid played that. So bad songs, if you will, can just get stuck in our head, and so can actually good songs. And they can begin to affect us. And I would argue that the more we listen and the more we hear these songs, the more it begins to impact us and even impact how we feel without us even really thinking about it in both good and bad ways. So it's my contention that we all have secret hymns. And I think that by that I mean secret hymns that we subconsciously are singing to ourselves. We have, if you will, a personal doxology, a short song that we play in our mind like a theological feedback loop that goes over and over and over again. And it declares truth, or at times it declares lies about God, about our circumstances, who God is, who I am, which actually begins to govern how we perceive things and how we experience things and how we think and even feel about things. And Jude has warned us about what we just call dangerous doxologies, the ones that invade our minds all the time because guess what? We hear them all the time. And they often come from really good singers. Singers. As we talked about, the false gospels of self are attractive. They, they itch our ears. They're captivating. They're not saying totally weird things. They're saying things that are powerful. And so we begin to listen to them, and then we begin to replay them over and over again. And because, for the most part, we are relentlessly bombarded with false truth, especially these false gospels of self, we have to follow what Paul reminds us to do in Romans 12, renew our minds. We have to renew our minds with with biblical doxologies, with biblical truth, with, yes, theology. Because singing is powerful, without doubt. But actually, repetitive singing about God can be transformational, and it can change you. Now, the question is, when should we be singing these biblical doxologies? When should we be processing or repeating theology in our head? Well, I think it should be now. That's an interesting word. 
I think I could preach a whole sermon on that word. I was tempted to, but then we'd be in Jude for two more weeks, and so I decided not to. But now, it's interesting, that word is both used by Peter, it's used by Paul. Now, now to him, now. And what that tells us is that we're not to actually wait until we feel like singing. Right? We're actually to sing to impact how we feel and how we think and even perhaps how we act. It's true to say, I think, or at least accurate, that we are singing actually doxologies right now anyway. There's something replaying, that your mind is, is set on something because you have been listening to someone that your soul has attuned itself to. Much like prayer, right? We went through a series morning and evening, and what I argue is like if you don't set your mind on things above, then you will naturally have your mind set by things below on life. And so if you don't sing about the unchanging truth of God, your soul will be attuned to the ever-changing world of circumstances, which is pretty chaotic and unpredictable. Even if, you know, the truth we live out isn't written on paper, it becomes in time written on our hearts. We have some kind of theological doxology, if you will, setting the rhythm of our lives. And the title of our song is the same for all of us. It's, I believe. The lines might be different, though. But they all start the same with the same two words, I believe. You wonder if your song says, I believe God is good. I believe God is good. God is good. Or I believe God is cruel. I believe that God is present. God is here. God is with me. Or I believe I am all alone. I believe that God is in control. I believe God is sovereign. I believe God is powerless. I believe God is capricious. I believe God saves by grace. Or I believe I save myself by how good or bad I do. I believe that God is the one who makes me worthy. Or I believe, no, I'm unworthy. Or I've got to make myself worthy. I believe God is master. I believe God is ruler. I believe God is king. Or I believe that he's actually my servant. Now, we don't say those things. We don't say we actually sing those things. But I wonder if those songs are playing in our mind over and over again. And perhaps causing us to ask what the lines of our personal doxology sounds like. The one that we are singing the one that is being played over and over again and what that actually reveals about what we believe. You see, when I began this series, I claimed that everyone has a theology. The only question is whether or not it's biblical and true. We all have thoughts about God, perceptions of God, expectations of God. We don't often ask whether they actually jive with Scripture. We need biblical doxologies to protect us from unbiblical heresies. Ones that sound spiritual, ones that are attractive, ones that I'm prone to wander toward. And it's never too soon to start singing a biblical doxology. Never too soon, never too late.
We need to set our minds on the truth of Jesus now, not just when I feel like it. We need to set our minds on the truth of Jesus now. We need to submit to his lordship now. We need to prepare for the return of Jesus now. Those are the kinds of things we need to play back and forth over and over again in our minds. We need to contend for the truth now because lies are right now contending for your soul. Now we have to be careful not to write protest songs. Christians are good at that. Writing songs about what they don't believe, what they won't do. Did you know that when people are being trained professionally, whether the FBI or whoever, to identify counterfeit money, they don't actually study counterfeit money. They devote most of their time studying genuine money, the truth. Therefore, that which is fake becomes quite obvious. Perhaps this is why the Apostle Paul commends us to say, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Check this out. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, right? Play them over and over again, over and over again, over and over again. And the God of peace will be with you. Yes, you'll feel peaceful. That's not what it says. It says as you begin to dwell on these things, what happens? The God of peace will be with you. God will be with you. You will be closer to God and that in turn will bring peace. Singing theology, thinking about what you believe, Replaying truth in your mind about what is true, what is pure, about God and who he is and what he has done and what he is going to do impacts you. It transforms you. It changes you. We need to dwell on this written glory, if you will, from God. Now, Jude helps us to do this, I think, through one of the most beautiful um, doxologies in Scripture. In Jude 24 and 25 one of the most beautiful written glories in Scripture. In contrast to the doxology of self, Jude focuses the beginning of this doxology by basically turning our thinking toward what God is able to do. What do we sing about most of the time? What I am able or unable to do. This is the kind of song, a song about what God is able to do, the God who is able, that we need, especially when we don't feel able. When I feel unable to stand, when I feel unable to contend, unable to endure, unable to last. That's a very natural feeling, maybe perhaps even an expected feeling. And that's why our minds must be turned to the one who is able. And he says, to the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and the one who is able to present to you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Now there are hundreds, perhaps thousands of ways that Jude could have described who we're directing our praise toward. And he chose these two. Jesus is the one who keeps us and Jesus the one who brings us. Jesus who keeps us, and Jesus who brings us into the presence of God. The first thing Jude reminds himself and his readers is that Jesus is going to keep you from stumbling. 
That's a word we use a lot, it seems, in the Christian world. It's scriptural, causing your brother to stumble, uh, not stumbling in the faith. It's important to understand that the word stumbling here, that the way at least Jude is using it, is the idea of failing or falling permanently. We know, given any amount of time in life, that Jesus doesn't keep us from believing every single falsehood. He doesn't keep us from making every mistake that we can make. He doesn't keep us from experiencing suffering. But He promises to keep those who are His from abandoning the faith completely. He promises to bring those who are His home. He promises to complete the work that He began in you, even if you stumble along the way. Even if you stumble into doubt. Which Jude earlier had said, have mercy on those who doubt. Doubt is in many ways a part of the journey of faith. And it's not a disqualifying experience. It's a quite natural one. Because even if you stumble into doubt, even if you trip over some bad teaching, which I'd argue many, if not all of us, have done at some point, even if you fall short in some way, the truth that Jude brings is like God's kids, those who are His, those that He has adopted through faith in Jesus Christ, God's kids can never fall out of God's care. As a parent, perhaps you know that well. As your kids stumble their way through life, making mistakes that you yourself make, saying, please don't make this mistake. Don't walk into that hole. And you see them stumble their way, but yet you love them. You care for them. You are there for them, protecting and guarding them as best that you can and perfectly as you might. God does it perfectly. God's kids can never fall out of God's care. Without question, it seems like there are those that do. It seems like those who were God's kids who abandoned the faith. This was happening since the early church. The Apostle John talks about this very thing. He says, Children's the last hour, and as you heard, the Antichrist is coming, and so many Antichrists have come. And when he speaks about Antichrist, that which is against Christ, he speaks particularly about how people twist Jesus and declare Jesus different than who he actually is in Scripture in some way. He says, therefore we know that this is the last hour this is happening. And he goes further to say, they went out from us. There were people who went out from us, from their gathering, from the church, but they were not of us. For if they have been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, that's a difficult thing to read. But perhaps it's a comforting thing to know this, is, this does happen. And I would argue that false teachers and, yes, false converts come in and they leave. They come and they go often. But Jude tells us those whom God has called to himself will remain in the faith because they are kept by God. Jesus saves and he will not lose anyone that he has saved. No one, not even you, can snatch them out of 
God's hand. Earlier, strangely, seemingly differently, Jude had charged us, well, keep yourselves in the love of God. Right? He said that previously. And as Mike preached last week, we know that does mean, as Jesus said in John 15, abide in my love, which means abide in my word, stay close to me, drink deeply of me. That is true, and we should do that. But what is also true, and what is also included in Jude's doxology, is a very powerful reminder. And the powerful reminder is this, that we, you, Anyone who is saved is saved decisively by God's love for us and not our love for Him. The Bible says in Romans, right, nothing can separate you from God's love. But I'll tell you, there's a list of things and some of them are very insignificant that at times have separated my love for God. But it doesn't work the other way around. That I'm decisively saved, I'm decisively kept, I'm decisively in God's family because God has chosen to love me and He keeps me in that love even if I trip along the way. And He is able to do that. I am not. He also reminds His readers that God is able to bring us, or Jesus is able to bring us into His presence completely blameless. When you think about why Jesus went to the cross, if you were to ask that question, why did Jesus die on the cross? I think many of us would think, well, because I was a sinner and I needed forgiveness, which is true. I need my sin atoned for. I needed, I deserve death. All those things are true. But what is also true is what Peter says in his first epistle. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. Never forget that God's goal is to be with you. Yes, He has to forgive you to accomplish that. Yes, He has to cleanse you to accomplish that. But His goal, inexplicably, why do you want to be with me? Is to dwell with us. He wants to bring us close. He wants to share His love. He wants to be in the most intimate of relationship with us. That's His goal. He wants to bring us into His presence, blameless. Now, the false gospels, you know what they do? They turn us away from Jesus as the only way and the only truth and the only life and the only means to actually find ourselves blameless towards self. They tempt us to believe that we're actually able to make, us, make ourselves right with God. That if we do the right things or not do the wrong things, that in the end we'll be okay. If you ask people, do you believe you're going to heaven? First of all, the majority of people say there is a heaven. Secondly, the majority of people who say that will say they believe they're going to be there. And third, they will say, I'm going to be there. Why? I've done more good than bad. That, in many ways, they're saying, I'm able. And what Judas tells us, no, you're not. Tim Keller says it really simply, and sometimes the most simple things are the most powerful, and maybe take a little more explanation as well, though. Don't forget the heart of the gospel. The gospel is not that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you've been good, but that it doesn't matter that you've been good as long as you believe in Christ Jesus as your Savior. 
Now, those who know Christ Jesus as their Savior, the same grace to save is the grace that moves, and I believe that there's a desire change and an affection change, and you desire to do good works, but don't get that backwards. Because all too often we think, well, if I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, I'm not bad enough, then Jesus will love me. And the truth of the gospel says you're none of those things. You're not able to stand before a holy God on your own merits. The day of the Lord is coming when every eye will sing, the, see the King in all his glory. And I think on that day, we must ask ourselves, with what confidence will you stand there? With what confidence will you stand there? Because Christ is the only one without blemish or defect. Only those who are blameless, only those who have no defect, only those who have no guilt and no shame can stand before a holy God. That's not me, that's not you, but that is Jesus. And so, in the end, there will be those who ultimately have put their trust in Jesus' work, and in the presence of God, they'll be filled with joy. And then there will be those who have put their trust in their own work, and they will be filled in the presence of God with terror. Because ultimately what's happening, it'll be those whom Jesus represents and they're able to enter heaven and those who say, I represent myself and they'll be cast away. So consider the song going through your mind, the doxology, if you will, that is shaping what you believe and, and dictating in many ways what you think and feel and how you act. Think about for a second, why are you worthy I've said this before, when someone presses on you and says, how's your walk? How's your relationship with the Lord? If your mind primarily and instantly goes to your successes or your failures, to your strengths or your inadequacies, you're off gospel. Because when someone asks you about your faith and your walk, guess who reminds you to go? Christ. We've all got strengths, we've all got weaknesses, we've all got successes and failures. And that's why we put our faith in Christ who is completely perfect. And we let his blood cover us and we be hidden in him as we stand before our God. Either I am able or he is. It can't be both. And Jude says, he is able, he is able, he is able, and you are not. But through faith in Christ, you are. Well, in verse 25, Jude concludes his doxology further speaking deep theology, saying to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So much in there. And in this final part, he just says, let me tell you what God alone is like, which means if God only is like this, then none of us are. That no one has this but God. That He is the only God. He is the only Savior. That Jesus is the only Lord. There can't be two Lords. There can't be two Saviors. There only is one God. And while it can sound as he goes on to say, let to God be glory, to God be mad, like he's wishing it. Let God have glory. Let God have majesty. Which is not a bad thing to say. But that's not what he is saying here. He isn't making a wish or a prayer about what he hopes will be. 
that phrase before all time. You don't wish for something to have it in the past. And so what he's really saying, he's describing what actually belongs to God alone. Not just be it for God, but what belongs to God alone. What belongs to God alone is glory. What belongs to God alone is majesty. What belongs to God alone is dominion and power. Imagine the kind of impact just singing those four things would have over and over again. If you said this over and over again in your mind, God was always, God is always, and God will always be supremely worthy, absolutely satisfying, completely ruling, and decisively leading. He is worthy. He is satisfying. He is ruling. He is leading. Do you think that saying those things, believing those things, dwelling on those things might actually change your experience in life? Because how often, it's not that you're not singing nothing. It's that something is actually supremely worthy in your life. And any time you sin, that thing is revealed. Something is absolutely satisfying. Something's ruling. Something is leading. It should be God. And because we have a broken flesh, guess what? We can't just sing the song one time. We have to preach ourselves this truth over and over and over again every morning and every evening, and we will never have to stop preaching ourselves that same truth until we're with our Savior. I've learned that much of Christianity, at least a lot of it that's taught, and I've even considered if, if a lot of the sermons I preach are like this. We emphasize what we must do. And I don't necessarily think that's wholly bad. Because even as you look at Jude, he's called us to very particular actions. He's called us to contend. He has called us to stand firm. He's called us to pray in the Spirit. He's called us to keep ourselves in God's love. He's called us to snatch people from the fire. But how does he end his epistle? Be still and know he is God. I don't know about you, but that's, I'm a very action, task-oriented person. And if you get too focused that way, you can just become prideful as you succeed or despairing as you fail. In the midst of all of that, actually as the bookends of that, we should be still and remembering who God is. The false gospels invite us to actually kind of preach different truth and sing different songs. They invite us actually to seek our own glory, to celebrate our own magnificence, to build our own kingdoms, to rule by our own authority, to take from God what belongs to Him alone. The enemy comes along, and he did it before the fall, and he says, hey, do you know that you're less than you should be? A little bit of shame in there to make you go, yeah, you, you, you actually used to be like God. Oh, like God. And so in an effort to feel better, and more satisfied and more worthy, we begin to sinfully seek self-glory. And Jude's doxology tells us not to. 
it says, focus on God's glory. And what's so crazy, it's almost as if the one God wrote the same Bible, all these letters. At the end of Romans, the last verse, what does Paul say? To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. And then, wouldn't you know it, at the end of Peter's epistle, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, and sa- our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity, amen. And you think to yourself, what is all this glory talk? It's like they can't get off of it. But God can't get off of it. The question is, why does the Spirit have all these apostles, Jude and Peter and Paul, all say the same things? Look to glory. Think about the glory. Think about God. And we talk about that like, oh, glorify God. You should ask yourself, like, what does that mean? Because when we speak of God's glory, you know what we're really just doing? We're declaring God the infinitely greatest of all things. We are really saying, look, God is supremely excellent, more excellent than anything in this world. And God is supremely important, more important than anything in this world. And God is the source, if you will, of the most supreme pleasure more than anything in this world. Jude's letter began that way, talking about what Jesus has done, that he is called and he is keeping. And guess how Jude ends? Talking about what Jesus is doing, how he is keeping, how he deserves the glory. And those should be the bookends of our life. Those should be the bookends of our day. Every morning and evening, speaking about the glory of God. And when your faith is tried, and when others begin to abandon, it seems, theirs, those are the times we need to sing those songs even more loudly. And what kinds of things? Do I need to just write a doxology? No, there's plenty in Scripture. The one we read this morning. I want you to think about just, just those first three words. If you're in the midst of just suffering right now, in the midst of confusion right now, in the midst of like, ah, just things are hard right now, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. There are oftentimes people come to me and I've had a bad day. And you'll know I've had a bad day if I say these words. Hey, how you doing? Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. Because things are hard. But I need to remind myself of that. The Lord reigns. This doesn't surprise him. This is not outside his control. This is not outside his love. The Lord reigns. And he is beautiful. He is robed in majesty. His ways are good. The Lord is robed. He has put strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from all. It's been around a long time since eternity. Nothing is new to you. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted their voice. The floods have lifted up their roaring. I feel like I'm drowning. But mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Singing that? in the midst when, you know, you don't feel like it. And that's why I said, we don't sing these things and say these things and dwell on things when we feel like it. The most important time is when you don't because then it changes how you feel 
and how you think and what you believe. Doxologies. We'll close with reminding us, quite simply, that these written glories, if you will, are so powerful because they proclaim, I would argue, much-needed truth at a much-needed time. Sometimes we need to sing songs to ourselves to compete with the noise of our own circumstances, but you know, a lot of times we need to gather so that we can hear others sing those songs over us because they're too hard for us to sing in the moment. I think it's noteworthy that the last word in the book of Jude is Amen. And that's not just the word you say at the end of prayer. Perhaps you do, we often do. It's a very common word in the Old and New Testament. And it is used to end prayers and even letters. In fact, it's the final word in the book of Jude, final word in the book of Romans, and in 1 Corinthians, and Galatians, and even the book of Revelation. And you go, why? Well, it means several things. One, when you say amen, you're actually talking about the truthfulness of something. When Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say to you, he was saying, amen, amen, I say to you. It speaks about the truthfulness of something, that this is true, but it's also an invitation for all who hear to agree. These letters were read publicly, right? And we have people here that say amen, what they're saying, I agree to that. That is true. And we need that. It seems to imply, and I think Jude would make this argument, I think all of the New Testament would, that we need actually a unity to our songs, that we actually need to gather together to sing with one voice. And that is both a beautiful thing and a powerful thing, but guess what? It's also quite a protective thing. That we don't just go off and sing our own tune. That we come together as God's people and we're singing. Yes, it's beautiful, but it's also like keeps us in the truth. We're singing the same truth about the same God and the same Savior that guards us and guards our unity and guards the truthfulness of our belief. Did you know